Big thanks to this episode's sponsor, InfoCrank Power Meters. Our mission at the Cycling Performance Club podcast is to provide the best, most insightful, and most accurate cycling performance information to you and the greater cycling community. InfoCrank shares this mission with us. Proven to be the world's most accurate power meter and utilized by numerous Olympic and world champions, InfoCrank provides cyclists with a level of precision and peace of mind that is unsurpassed in the industry. InfoCrank is offering our listeners an exclusive 20% discount off the InfoCrank Road or the InfoCrank Track power meters, and we have just received news that InfoCrank is extending this offer until the end of the month, the 30th of September 2022. So definitely check out the link in the description and use discount code PERFORMANCE20, that's PERFORMANCE20, to get your upgrade into the most accurate power meter on the market. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. Willkommen beim the Cycling Performance Club podcast mit Dr. Peter Leo. That was me practicing. <laughs> but this was really good, huh? The podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Today, power profiling. Advancements in power profiling of cyclists and best practice. This topic is going to be split into two episodes. The first one is dedicated to defining the types of power profiling and explaining the current methods used. In the second part, we move into more practical advice on how to power profile, including getting right into the details on how to choose the best method for your situation and where power profiling is headed in the near future. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Peter Leo, sports scientist, researcher, endurance coach, who is now just entering his new role as, I think it's the lead endurance performance scientist at Oz Cycling. Is that correct? Yeah, the description is called endurance training scientist, and I'm there as a performance support role to help the track endurance coaches for Road to Paris 2024. Yeah, yeah. And you are a relatively recent graduate from your PhD and today we will be discussing in depth much of the research that you conducted during that time. And you did a lot of your stuff around power profiling of cyclists, which is a really interesting topic. And my opinion, if you review it, it does a really good of advancing that practice. The other area of your research was around the cohorts of the professional U23 riders. But for our regular listeners of the show, they might remember that Peter was mentioned in the Jason Bartram's episode when we were discussing critical power. Peter's been using critical power as an athlete for many years. Here, you can hear him after completing critical power testing at a training camp when he was an under-23 Austrian triathlete competing over sprint and Olympic distances. Well, I'm here with elite athlete Peter Leyer from Austria. Uh, Peter has just spent uh, the last six days with me where we've been doing testing, training, 
and essentially just trying to identify Peter's weaknesses. Uh, we've been using critical power testing, critical velocity analysis, and um, I think we got we got somewhere. What did you find very interesting this week? Yeah, getting the numbers from testing and uh, doing the specific long uh, ride up to the mountains in my zones was quite useful for me, and uh, I think it should be a huge progress. This gap was held by coach and sports scientist Garth Fox, and after Peter completed his Bachelor of Science in Sports and Exercise Science from the University of Applied Sciences in Austria, he went on to do an internship with Garth. Who is based in, in, in the French Alps, and um, yeah, I had the pleasure to work with him in 2014, 2015, during the Tour de France, analyzing power profiles, and that was the first uh, touching ground for myself with this kind of, uh, yeah, objective. Working his way through a Master of Science degree in Sports and Exercise Science, and when you scroll through his published works on ResearchGate, you'll see a bunch of retrospective studies, but there are more than one on the power duration relationship and power profiling. And because we are taking a deep dive into power profiling in this episode, let me kick things off. Cycling power profiling is most frequently described as the evaluation of power outputs obtained from the field. In the late 1980s, when mechanical power output was first measured on bikes, the first power meter for cycling was developed. And power profiling came after that. The capacity to precisely measure power output under field conditions in real time allowed for a thorough analysis of mechanical power production that was previously only possible in labs. Hence, testing and monitoring performance changes over time was the natural next step. Now, it's not only used for that, as Peter explains. Can you define and describe for us what exactly is power profiling? It, it is a frequently used term, and I think the first time where it really got more a broader audience was with where uh, Alan Kogan introduced his power profile with the Trading Peak software and providing that classification table between male and female different uh, rider caliber from pro world tour level up to recreational cut one, cut two. So, so I think that was also known from my, from my kind of studying background the first time I, I heard about it and all the, his book about training and racing with a power meter. It, it, it just started my interest there. And, and basically what you can what what you can think of it, it is a it is a selection of power outputs across durations so and it's arbitrarily selected so either it's it's up to you which duration you want to pick uh, and which duration you find useful mm-hmm. um it can be one second peak power it can be five minute it can be 20 minute it can be one hour but it can also be three 12 15 minutes whatever you find useful for so uh, power profiling can be done with each duration you find it's it's uh, replicable to your competition demands. The idea was using that kind of power profiling information to determine a, mo- a, a performance model or a physiologic underlying physiological model, which is um, known as the power duration relationship. And 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 part of my PhD was um, the idea was including power profiling information to inform the power duration relationship of an athlete which tells basically the the maximum power output for each duration he is capable of i hope this is kind of definition where everyone can at least understand the the two different objectives to go over that again power profiling can be used in two ways 
one for the tracking of longitudinal changes in performance and race analysis, and two for the theoretical and practical implications associated with the power duration relationship. The power duration relationship is when power output is plotted against time to task failure, essentially charting the max power limit for any duration of time along a curve. And power duration relationships have become very popular and also very useful in managing training and performance in cycling as they provide a relatively easy way to get an idea of the performance of an athlete. We're going to take a look at both of these applications through power profiling, starting with the most common methods to build a power profile, which is probably, in popularity terms, as Peter just discussed, the Hunter and Coggan method. Many organizations use the Hunter and Coggan's methodology, such as Trainer Road and Carmichael Training Systems. And then there's other groups that have created their own power profile tests, such as Wahoo Systems for Dimensional Power Profile or EF Coaching's Dynamic Threshold Power Test. And there's other coaches, again, that have created their own power profile tests. However, all of these profiling methods lack scientific validation. And this point is not lost on either Jason or Peter. So I did want to like say something about the Hunter and Kagan method. Uh, and that is, I think it was a five second duration, one minute, five minute, 20 minute, and then they also have a 60 minute. Yeah. And I always like to like introduce fun facts along the way. But one of the things I recently found about that was that the method in the book and the method that's in Training Peaks are different. Like I was just kind of assumed they were the same. And then yeah. I looked at the numbers I was like, oh, whoa, these are different categorizations. I thought they were, were the same, but like, yeah. and one of the things that kind of irks me a little bit about that power profiling, although it was a unique way to approach it, it was, you know, good for them. Um, but from what I can see is that it's unfalsifiable in the sense that we don't really know how those were created. They were just like, here it is, trust this is what, what we're saying. And it's like, well, where is the kind of transparency of how you came up with this? Where's the methods? Where's the data? All that kind of stuff. So that's the advantage, I think, of, again, just validated methods in general is it's not like you have to coach with validated methods. It's just nice to have validated methods because then you know better where the limits are and how they're described and that type of thing. So just let me let me let me add something to to Hunter Allen and Kogan because I think they did some really good work and pioneering work. I think it's not fair to criticize them about the methodological issue because it was created for coaches. You know, it was created for a book. It was not mean to be scientific. The problem is the more they advertise this kind of product, the more they try to engage with it's scientifically established, it's scientifically proved. Um, and there are other softwares around from other companies which pretend to be scientifically uh, validated, but they haven't. So that's the problem. And as soon as you cross this line from a petitioner's perspective, you will get some, I would say, headwind from others you know, who cannot accept this. And I was one of them because... I think it's fair to use it as a coaching recommendation, but you cannot use it as a scientific established method. Because as you said, you need to know the sample size. You need to know how many female and male were included. Uh, you need to know why this specific duration were selected. Because otherwise I can also, okay, instead of the 20 minute, why didn't you pick 80 minutes mm -hmm. or 22? 
So what's durational behind this fixed duration approach? Uh, and there was no context. So this was why my motivation was to provide more context about this. And this is why we, 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 we put out the original investigations, but also try to recap all our findings with with a narrative review. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I actually just recently had a conversation with a coach that was kind of on the inner circle of the Training Peaks universe as someone that was gives suggestions and has feedback and that type of stuff. And one of the things that he said was that, you know, this was a, kind of what you said, this is meant a tool for coaches, not for scientists. But at, at the end of the day, that's great. But some coaches want to have scientifically validated methods. That's not a really great argument. It's not to say that you can't have FTP yeah. and you can't have methods that aren't validated, but it's good to have a choice, I would say. The choice is what I would be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I also think having a choice is good. However, when it comes to power profiling, there is currently no agreement on what is the best practice for power profiling, which seems pretty wild considering the choices available. And this is why Peter and his co-authors wrote a narrative review to present and discuss existing practices and methods and make recommendations for conducting profiling and also to suggest future research directions. Dr. Leo's review is available free online and it's linked in the description. So I definitely recommend checking that out, especially as a reference to the figures that will be mentioned later on in the episode. Let's get into your review that is entitled Power Profiling and the Power Duration Relationship in Cycling in Narrative Review. And then you, your co-authors on that were James Sprague, Tim Podler, Podliger, uh, Justin Lally, <laughs> uh, and Inigo uh, Mujica. Or is it, or is it Jay Silent Mujica? I've read his name like a billion times, but... Mujica. 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 It's called Mujica. Mujica. Yeah, yeah. It's he's Basque man, so Mukika. Um, and that was published uh, as recently as 2021 in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. So good journal there. I actually had this review in my collection. I think I came across it probably almost when it came out. Then it unfortunately got lost in the stack <laughs> over a few months. You've probably had that happen. Uh, then I saw your review received a nice little bump and some accolades uh, in a tweet from Dr. Mark Burnley. That tweet reads, a superb summary of power profiling and cycling from Peter Leo and colleagues. I would have to say that Dr. Burnley was correct. Your review is really good. And I think it does a good job of kind of advancing the practice of power profiling cyclists. And it does a good job of integrating critical power into a more practical role within the sport as opposed to just something, some way to set a threshold. Yeah, you do a, a very good kind of integrating of the science and practice. When we reviewed Nick Jamnick's paper, I love that review. It's a very nerdy kind of scientist review. And it's good in terms of it does talk a lot about the practical side of it. But it's also a lot of basic science stuff. It's more of like a cautionary yeah. tale, his review. And yeah, and I and I highly recommended it for the kind of nerdy sports scientist people that are out there. Um, your yeah. review, I would recommend to the same people, but also expand that out. So I would say any full time coach that's working with cyclists should read this for sure. Anyone, <laughs> any, and overlapping with that would be any coach that would be 
kind of evidence-based. So if you were coaching athletes part-time and you're, and you feel like you're evidence-based science-based, then you should definitely be reading this review. I think it's, that's where I would probably put it at. And I think the, judging by what you were saying about the amount of reads that you, you've, you've gotten on this paper, uh, I think a lot of people have probably already sorted that out. So to the listeners that are like, oh, is this the same kind of recommendation that you would give for Nick's? Nick's review is awesome. I love it. Um, but yours, I am recommend, recommending for a, uh, a different cohort. Yeah. Cyrus, did you get a chance to read it? Did you have any thoughts yeah. on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've um, obviously read this as well for, this, for the same reasons. But I think it's just really important that if you're coaching cyclists and using this kind of stuff all the time, you want to get an idea of where it's coming from, like where these methods are coming from, why we're using this kind of stuff. It's pretty easy to go straight to the what you're doing without the why. And I think as a coach, you're implementing so many different training interventions and all of these things, but you sort of have to force yourself to step back and go, why am I doing this? Obviously, each thing that you're telling an athlete to do, they could be doing something else. So you have to often ask yourself the question, why am I using this? Well, this review is just uh, giving you something that is basically answering that why question over a lot of the yeah a lot of the findings from this review and what it's established. And then also just from a a time efficiency perspective, if you get a good review like this, it can save you so much time just filtering through a heap of different papers, trying to work yeah. out which papers are good, which papers aren't good to look at. Like that's the first point. Uh, I'm sure yep. any of us use as researchers, if we think, oh, I need to know more about this, let me find a good review. And then it just solves you all the time. You've got all the yeah. the further reading that you want straight away there. So it's basically just a time saver for any coach to go straight to something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you also have to think that this review, I think one of the reasons why it is so applied is that three of the five co-authors were also working as coaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Also, you can say this information was just um, written by coaches <laughs> at yeah. some point, you yeah. know, because I definitely, uh, when, I, when I came up with the ideas or the opportunity with, with this kind of review and say, okay, do we, would we like to, or are we going to do a duplicate of all other critical power reviews which have been out, you know, talking about the underlying physiology too much and and there was like it was almost going into the into the into this direction but now i can i can mention it uh, but we had a very good reviewer you know who is also coming from this direction i am not going to uh, name him now um, but but he's very affiliated to the uh, objective and he just put in a comment that okay guys all the information you um you you put in is okay but, you know, no one is going to read this review in this kind of version. And this was the first submission where we had this review in. And, and he, he pointed out quite clearly why uh, and said, try, you know, just try to write it from a coach perspective. And I think that was the tipping point of, of this whole review. He said, OK, we just need to hold to restructure this kind of thing. Uh, don't let it be mediocre um, and don't let it be a, publica- a duplicate of all others 20 reviews what have been uh, published into this field. So I think this was the first review thinking clearly from a coach perspective uh, about what challenges a, a coach is confronted with when asking about, okay, what should I use? Um, and, and I think this is why the narrative of this, of this review 
um, was so applied that even a coach not with a so, let's call it sports underlying physiology understanding can at least get the conclusion of why he should select the durations accordingly or why maybe a single visit 20 minute uh, test is not sufficient enough to determine the whole power profile and stuff like that uh, and also you know being aware of the limitations i'm not telling uh, here someone that the critical power concept is the only way of doing it uh, it's a i think it's a, it, it provides a good opportunity of establishing information with a with some kind of really well documented proven scientific approach but there is, you know, there is something also where we need to elaborate more in the future is it's what happens if we, and this is now what, what James Speck tries to answer with, with his PhD research, what's happening when we accumulate more work and how does it affect our our power production capabilities, uh, what is happening in, in, let's say, the moderate domains of, of um, exercise and so on. So there is there are a lot of unanswered questions at the moment where we don't have a lot of information and we also don't have the right models to predict power outputs or project any kind of information. So I think it, it just it just provided a, an up-to-date view about the opportunities, but also the threats in a very practical way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and getting this feedback from, from both of you is really like, if you ask me one year ago, what the review should uh, meet was exactly that feedback. That was always our intention to make it so applied, still based on the facts, but very applied, very understandable, uh, and not go digging into too too much that underlying physiology where you try to under- explain complex bioenergetics where almost none of us really understands what or how <laughs> it is composed. All right, so we're starting on the different methodological approaches to power profiling here. So let's discuss the different methodological approaches to power profiling. I have down, there's what, there's Coggins original, there's bidding exposure variation, mean power, uh, mean maximal power, and, um, and power duration curves. So yeah, what is power profiling? What are these types? Can you get into some of the details of these? Yeah, the Kogan method, and the, the the other one is is more looking for timing zone, so the accumulation of time in a specific power output zone, which is called binning. And this binning uh, technique can either be an arbitrary power output range. For example, you go from one hundred to two hundred watts, from two hundred to three hundred watts. So you 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 determine itself where you want to set the range. So this was done by Alan Metcalf or Tammy Ebert. In, in the very recent year, re- years, we also used this approach because we had no really physiological data available for the professional group in our study. So this is why we, we use the arbitrary selection of um, 100 power output spans from, starting from 0 to 500. So this is, this is an option, but this is, of course, not really having any physiological link to what they can maintain over, over different durations. So... It's a first approach, but it's, of course, lacking uh, individual variation. The, the second one, which is quite more advanced in terms of the binning approach, is the EVA, which is the exposure variation analysis. 
Um, and this is based um, that the power bins are based on physiological events. So in order to use EVA, you need a laboratory assessment before to know your VT1, so your first uh, ventilatory or lactate threshold and your, your second uh, lactate threshold or your uh, respiratory compensation point, either from lactate profile testing or from spirogometry testing. And also, of course, power output correlating to VO2 max. So you're, I know it's a bit, it's a, this is dogmatic, but maximum aerobic power, it, it's, it, the, the concept does not really exist from a physiological perspective because it's affected by the, the protocol you're using. But at least if you always do it the same, for example, at 20 watt uh, minute RAM test per minute, it always, um, yeah, it correlates to a peak power output uh, represented of a four to si- uh, six minute duration of a maximum effort. So this is a quite good correlate to it. And when you have this information, and this is, this is a figure, I don't know which figure it is in our review, but we, we did some pining for a criterion or a very stochastic race. So when you're doing um, undulating racing with a lot of uh, variation in gradient or, or a lot of variation in, in just altitude or, or mini efforts, this approach is really valuable because it quantifies each second spent in, in the power output bin. And the big advantage is because power output reacts one-to-one to a change in speed or intensity. So this is why this approach is really picking up each second in the required power output bin. Uh, heart rate, for example, there, is, there are also heart rate pinning concepts, but we all know due to the, due to the slow heart rate kinetics of an effort and also uh, very prone to fatigue, this heart rate pinning is not something what we consider it's valuable, but it's, it has not direct implication to, to a change in performance, whereas the power output bidding is, is definitely something which is interested. Unfortunately, it's, it has been not so accessible in, in kind of the bigger training uh, platform software providers. Um, so, yeah, at the moment, there, I think there is a, a golden cheater option, but this is not always up, updated. So we had to do our analysis as, in Excel as well. And this is why it's, I think it's not so regularly used, but it's definitely something which is quite valuable. And I think the big kudos also needs to go to Chris Abbey's and, mm-hmm. and colleagues for developing this. The next method would be the mean maximal power output. So yeah. I think a lot of listeners have probably heard of MMP or seen the abbreviation. So yeah, so how do we, how would we power profile with that? <laughs> yeah, this approach is definitely mental because um, <laughs> everyone, I think, is... When referring to power profiling, everyone is, is, is referring directly to MMP approach. And, and I think that mm-hmm. the extensive research in the last two, three years, including Dunn's work, Deyo's work, our work uh, with, with the Sprague Podlager, myself, um, Inigo Mujica, uh, but also the Spanish guy with David Barranco, Muriel, Valenzuela, and Mat- Manu Mateo Mark um, extensively. Uh, provided MMP profiling in men, women, junior, under 23. So it's basically everything what was recorded was published. And it's, um, I think, mm-hmm. to be fair, and as I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying it's, it's bad, but I think you have to acknowledge the limitations. And it's, it's definitely mm-hmm. an approach which is um, kind of dubious when you don't have any formal information about that effort 
just the power file. The problem is an, an MMP approach alone without a standardized test, either in pre-season or in the season where you say, okay, mm-hmm. for a two-minute duration, a 12-minute duration, you go all out. So basically what you want to do with this standardized testing is to anchor your power duration relationship to basically determine or characterize it. And then when you add a racing effort, which was subconsciously achieved during a race or just like, uh, yeah, kind of a racing event, this can then be interpreted as, is this changing or affecting my previously established power profile or not? And I'll tell you why you can characterize it. Because from this established relationship, from the standardized test, you can either judge, is this effort sub-maximal or is it maximal, which is outside of your predicted curve. And this is adding a very good kind of ongoing uh, evaluation of the power profile because this, this allows you to include efforts from training, you know, efforts from racing or either were peak power outputs were achieved. So I think that's a really good way. But it only works in a valuable way and in a, in a reliable way in conjunction with testing. Without testing, I would say it's almost Wild West data because the problem is with a fixed duration approach where you say, okay, I'm, I'm looking for the two-minute one, the four-minute one, the six-minute one, the eight-minute one, you are not sure if this F word was exactly eight minutes long, for example. It could also be 8.10, but the cutoff is 8 for your selection. So you took normally an 8-minute 10 effort for and, mm-hmm. and, and use it for 8 minutes. Of course, this is skewing and biasing uh, the accuracy of your power duration estimates. You know, and, and this could also have then wrong implications for the coaching process because training zones are established wrong or um, target interval training is established wrong. So... I think if you are not aware of this limitation, it could really have negative implications for practitioners as well. So I think there are better ways of doing it. Uh, and there are some, some, some kind of uh, advances also with kind of software. I know from, from David Tinker, from Interval ICU, but also from uh, Mark Liversedge in Golden Cheater. Uh, they are working on interval detection software, which basically spits out the exact effort duration. And you can then use that kind of effort duration exactly with the corresponding power output for establishing your power output relationship. And I think that's way more an advanced way of doing it because you're looking at the exact duration where this kind of effort was delivered. Uh, And I think I have also to mention here Phil Skiba and Mike Bukowitz, which uh, basically also provided this kind of underlying tools for analysis here. So these guys are on the top of the game. I'm basically just using their approaches just to, to yeah, to solve the, the equation in some words. One of the uses that I just thought of with the mean maximal power profiling approach, at least with like single workouts and races and things like that, is it's actually a way to flag workouts and efforts for further review. You know, if you've got a third best uh, yeah. five minute power for the year, well, that might mean you have a good seven minute yeah. power in there or something like that. So might want to take another look at yeah. it. So that's one of the advantages is it kind of no, no, exactly. take a look at this and see what else is going on in this. Exactly. And then 
I think I have some other stuff down here about uh, me maximal power would be some of the things that you mentioned in your review is it's like the arbitrary du durations that are picked for it. It's not necessarily super predictive of race performance. Um, and also you need to acknowledge what's this effort on a TT bike yeah, yeah. or on a road bike or a mountain bike, you know, this has massive implications about uh, power output delivery, about, mm -hmm. um, yeah, just other factors. Or whether it's an altitude or heat or environmental kind of things, because yeah. you just can't yeah. account for those outside yeah. of the lab. You can say yeah. that for almost any power profiling, right? And the last power profiling method that we have on here is uh, deriving a power duration curve. And we'll be spending probably the most time on that method in terms of being the most yeah. advanced method that is available probably right now. It's not to say that if it's not advanced, as I kind of alluded to with the Mimaxel Power one, that it's the only one you would use. Yeah, exactly. If you're following along with Dr. Leo's review, figure two is an outstanding illustration that will help you better grasp and visualize the power duration curve method of power profiling. And, you know, there are, there are different techniques to do this. And I think before you even select a model, you need to be aware of which kind of efforts do you need in order to characterize your curve, you know. Uh, and it's necessarily not enough to do a 20-minute effort in order to characterizing a whole power duration curve. What this curve absolutely requires is a, is a sprint mm -hmm. effort. Uh, it's not, it hasn't, I would say, going into the range of um, a 10 to 15 second max sprint, where you really pick the second highest average, for example, in this sprint. I think this is a nice way of anchoring your power duration uh, relationship from a top-down approach, you know? Uh, and what you need then... So the, you're looking at like Pmax? Yeah, exactly, like a Pmax. Is that their Pmax value then? Exactly, like a Pmax value. It's, it's quite important. Yeah, so the methodological issues we just kind of touched on a little bit there was obviously the environmental factors. As Cyrus said, with the hypoxia and the heat, you'd all be concerned with that then there's obviously going to be differences between training and racing and then there's also if you're trying to power profile a race uh as you did in some of your retrospective studies then you have to be aware of context with uh, yeah. like team roles and drafting and that type of stuff yeah exactly context is a good is an important yeah. one yeah absolutely and this is why from deriving a power duration relationship this also says that you need standardized testing Without standardized testing, in a preseason, for example, there is no other way of getting around this to characterize your curve in the first attempt. And it's interesting when you look at the, at, at the shape of, of the power duration relationship, where the curve levels out to the power asymptote, there is basically the most important need to put in effort. So it doesn't help if I add a 15-second sprint, a one-minute uh, one effort and a two-minute effort and try to uh, characterize the, the curve based on just very short duration efforts. You need to deploy this whole effort over, over kind of a spectrum, you know. And this spectrum is set between two, two to 15 minutes duration. A good time trial maybe can add a 20-minute effort as well. But this is the most important um, duration were efforts, um, and, and then it doesn't matter if you choose a 2, a 5, a 12, or a 3, a 7, a 12, or a 3, 7, 15, as long as you do the same. Uh, I think there is some good papers from Felipe Mattioni, 
showing the different combinations of efforts. The only thing is that the shortest to the longest effort should at least five minutes apart, because that, that has otherwise massive implications for the, the accuracy of your, of your estimates. Um, but as long as this is ensured, and before you even start, you want to make sure is your parameter calibrated before such a test, you know. So at least if you don't can calibrate it manually with, with weight uh, or a static calibration, which most of them can't, uh, but for example, with a SRM, you can. Also SRAM force, um, you can. Uh, otherwise, at least do a zero offset. That's the minimum requirement of, mm-hmm. of kind of calibration, what you should do. And not do, do it uh, only for a, a test, but also do it for a race, for example, or so. That's the minimum required standard in order to make your power outputs meaningful. Anyway, power output recordings are a black box if you compare different manufacturers. And so although there are some reliability studies, um, it's still a big black box what we have to acknowledge. Power output recordings is something that I want to spend a little time on. Of course, power meters are important to power profiling. Duh. But what is not common knowledge is how inaccurate they can be. So let's take it back a little further and talk about power meters. So when we're doing this power profiling, let's start with the basics, right? Like this is, this requires a power meter uh, in the real world. And with that, there's things to consider about how you get those numbers. You know, you have to zero the power meter and, and that type of thing. So what should we be concerned about at this very basic level of collecting power data with our athletes? Yeah. Because what is the phrase? Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Right? So exactly, exactly. And we know this with lots of commercial power meters. There is a highly chance of getting wrong readings. You know, everyone experienced this when your power meter is not calibrated. It can show you everything, and and that's also kind of a problem at the moment that we don't have a general approach about calibrating uh, a power meter. Uh, for example, with different power meters with an app that would be really spot on. I mean, some parameters allow a manual adjustment of slope and zero offset, you know, like the SRM parameter or also the, the SRAM parameter. But there are some some parameters like the, the Shimano power meter or the Garmin battles. The calibration number they put out is like an arbitrary uh, unit. So you cannot really say, okay, they, they just tell you in the, in the, in the manual, it has to be within that range, but what does that range mean? So having that kind of confidence is really a problem. And there was another review by the group of Fred Grappé about the validity and reliability of parameters. And honestly, if this already is going wrong into that very first step, all the steps which follow is a massive problem and a massive implication because then you're putting out you're spinning the wrong information further and further and further. And this getting can get really into wrong, making wrong implications, making uh, wrong recommendations for the athlete and so on. So ensuring at least a well-calibrated power meter in terms of the zero offset, the slope. And you can do some some very basic comparison. You know, you sit on a, on a Cyclist 2 ergometer and you just do a steady power output of 200 watts and you measure the difference, for example, uh, for five, six minutes. Uh, and you do this in different intensities, you know, because what we often see is that either a power meter 
So when the slope is wrong, the power meter readings are quite accurate from the beginning, but the more intense you go, either the, the higher the power numbers is compared to the cyclos or the lower. So the, the slope is either diverging uh, your power output reading. And for example, if the zero offset is wrong, then the error is always, let's say, a 20 watts difference for each duration. If I could pick the error, which I would at least could work with, I would always say, okay, when the zero offset is wrong, at least I can assume the difference, the measurement difference is always the same. The problem is when the slope of the power meter is wrong, because then it's like, it's almost unpredictable uh, about the error. And that's, we have to say, this is something uh, where mm. at the moment we don't have a really proper solution. So you have to be at least aware of, of that issue. It's not about, okay, now we can forget everything, but then it's just, I think that's, this is the only point where a more expensive power meter with more rich history has clearly advantages into, for example, a 450 euro power meter or dollar power meter, yep. where they just, you don't know it's a black box. Um, from the first step, that's that's the crucial thing. And my, my takeaway message for the coaches, if you have a power meter and you're an ath- you have an athlete, just making sure with, let's say, a turbo session, a smart trainer session, and where you follow certain power outputs from a prescription, they should be within the range, let's say, within 2 to 3%. So let's say 5 to 10 watts is an acceptable range, plus, minus, everything above is physiologically relevant, what we would say. Um, and this, of course, implications for pacing strategies, uh, but also for longitudinal performance follow-up. So the two things I would interject here is for the listeners that there's a kind of a, a, um, a terminology problem here within power meter world, and that is the calibration that you're talking about is much more sophisticated than the quote-unquote calibration that an athlete might do by, you know, on a cork, they would spend, spin their cranks backwards or something like that. Or on a power tap, you might have to stop and calibrate it with your Garmin. That's not calibration. That's zeroing, but it's called calibration. So when we talk about calibration, yeah, exactly, you will know you're doing calibration because it's a little bit of a headache and it's, and it's a process and you're not on your bike your bike's in a stand and you are using weights and things like that. So very different process. Yeah. You do a static calibration. It's, it's exactly. the same problem as I have a theory. No, you don't. You have a hypothesis, right? It's same, same issue with that word. So yeah, uh, make sure that yes, a, a real calibration is happening. What is at least once a season. I mean, the SRMs are, I guess, are way more than that. It's like every couple of weeks or something like that to keep the SRMs in correct calibration. I think it's um, what we notice is especially it's important when you change location. So when you go from a, from a cold environment into a hot environment, this classic example is you, you are based in Europe in the winter and you go training to Mallorca or Gran Canaria with a uh, temperature difference of 15, 20 degrees. Then, of course, because it's physics, the, the reason how or how these power meters determine your power output is by strain gauges. And it's basically they record the formation with the strain gauges of the material, which is mm-hmm. the crank. And, and we all know when it gets warm, the formation is different when it's cold. So this needs to be accounted. So therefore, 
in this scenario, the power meter should be calibrated as you as you recommended, and especially for example for big events like Olympic Games, World Championships, Com Games, World Cup levels. I think yeah, that's key to have a very accurate power meter running. Otherwise, the problem in the post race analysis. You cannot even verify, okay, does this mean something to me or not? Can you learn from this information or not? So yeah, yeah. that's that's exactly what you what you just pointed out. How does Peter deal with these issues? Well, he puts a lot of effort into removing as much uncertainty as possible by having high standards when selecting the individual power meters that are used. All power meters that have been used in our research. They have been, I would not say validated, but at least compared to a cyclist to ergometer in the laboratory before, before even they were taken into the field and used for power profiling. So this was kind of our inclusion criteria. And the inclusion criteria was that the difference between the cyclist uh, power output and the bike power output or, or the crank power output should be within the measurement error of 2.5% as stated by the manufacturer. And if this power meter was not hitting that requirements, it was either recalibrated or not used. So I think that's that's a kind of very important information which has not has only been answered to reviewers, <laughs> but not really publicly. It was not yeah, it was mentioned in the in the manuscript as as power output was was uh, verified, but but that has been done. Uh, and yeah, there was there were some incidents during the season where, for example, riders crashed or power meters just got loose, they were not on the crank, and, and this power output data could then not be used. Yeah, they, they had to be excluded. So we were, we were basically filtering uh, the kind of efforts, and, and there are some, some kind of statistic criteria. You know, if your effort is outside the range of two standard deviations from the previous efforts, this cannot be uh, considered as a physiological relevance measure or, or relevant measure. And this is where you have to be suspicious about, okay, there is a technical error. And we were always very conservative with our filtering criteria. So we got rid of, of all this WS data, of course, because during a season where you are sampling 14 to 15 riders riding 22 to 25,000 K per hours uh, or almost 900 to 1,000 um, training hours, of course, there is error in the data. Uh, I think that would be not normal if you if you don't expect any tech, technical breakdown during this long period. At this point, it should be abundantly clear that the accuracy of the power meter is massively important when it comes to effectively profiling a cyclist, among other things. Unfortunately, this simple truth is too easily overlooked and undervalued in the realm of training cyclists. However, We'd hate to be the podcast continually bringing attention to complications within the cycling performance world without offering our listeners some effective solutions. And this brings us to this episode's sponsor, the InfoCrank Power Meter from Verve. The InfoCrank has been proven to be the world's most accurate power meter. It has been the go-to power meter for numerous national governing bodies, high-performance units, and Olympic and world champions for years. In other words organizations and individuals who understand the importance of an accurate power meter trust InfoCrank. The InfoCrank is able to achieve its high level of accuracy because it's a power meter like no other. It measures torque instantaneously from directly within the crank arms to actually calculate rider power output. 
This contrasts with other power meters that measure multiple forces and use algorithms to estimate power output. The InfoCrank's crank arm design and strain gauge placement fully isolates and measures the force propelling you forward. By taking measurements from within the crank arms in this way, InfoCrank can provide accurate and comparable results in all conditions, regardless of the temperature, surface, gradient, or any other variables known to affect other power meters. This also means, unlike other power meters, you do not have to continually remember to recalibrate and re-zero the InfoCrank to assure its accuracy. But for me, all of these technical features and talk of accuracy boil down to something more important and tangible. Peace of mind. With all the variables that can affect your performance outcome on any given day, your sleep, nutrition, your motivation, environmental conditions, on top of all of these things, do you really want to have to also consider the possibility of a wonky power meter reading when you really don't have to? To that, I would say no. With InfoCrank's exclusive 20% discount off the InfoCrank Road or the InfoCrank Track power meters for our listeners, there's no better time to get out of wonky power meter purgatory and into a trusted and accurate experience of an InfoCrank. See the link in the description and use discount code PERFORMANCE20 PERFORMANCE20 to get your upgrade to the most accurate power meter on the market. And there's also a chance to take advantage of a discounted pre-sale price on the next generation InfoCrank, the IC2. So definitely check that out as well. And with that, let's get back to the power duration relationship. So there's actually two things about the power duration relationship. The first one is how it relates to the domains. So I think that helps tie the power duration relationship back in with other things that we've talked on the podcast. And then the other thing that for your review that really kind of tied everything together for me was figure two. Yeah. And I guess figure two also kind of helps explain that really well. It's always kind of get confusing around critical power because people will start listing off all the different models and you have the two parameter, three parameter, you know, you have ones that use Pmax, you have other ones that don't, you have the, like the model that would be in power duration curve that would be in WKO5. Yeah. You have all these different models. The power duration model is not a WKO5 model. Of course, it has been used by them, but it's based on the Peronian Thibault model. And I think everyone should know this at least. Mm -hmm. So kudos goes to Guy Thibault. Uh, from I think they they this group is from Canada. They originally deployed this concept for running, but this was then used also for cycling by also by Fred Grappé and uh, Julien Pinot from FDG. And uh, yeah, this this is basically the underpinning uh, model is the Perony and Thibault model, which is also um, the the foundation for the Omni Power Duration model, uh, which was uh, recently developed by Mike Bukovitz mm -hmm. and colleagues. Mm -hmm. Your review is open access. And so for anyone that's listening to this, you can go into your phone. We should have a, a link in the description for this review. You can pull it up on your phone and actually look at this diagram while you're listening to us. And figure two was a funny story, you know, behind because in each app, you are required to make kind of a diagram of your research. And it's like, okay, how do we diagram a, a power duration curve or, or what's, how, how do we do this? And, and then uh, James and myself were sitting together and, and, and we had this power profile or power duration relationship in front of us and say, you know what? 
There was an article, a blog article by Mark Burnley about the rainbows and phase transition. Why not integrating this to one graph? And this is why this graph came out. It was basically more created out of fun, but, but I think this was the most used graph from the whole paper, uh, this graph too, mm -hmm. uh, combining all this kind of, uh, yeah, the spectrum of each model where each model is valid and also the limitation, which were then uh, discussed below. If you don't have the figure in front of you yet, I'll do my best to explain what Peter and Jason are talking about because it also sets up the next part of this episode. When you plot an athlete's power duration connection, you get a curve that shows the athlete's limits through all durations. These power outputs are connected to specific exercise intensity domains that exhibit distinct physiological responses. And this figure not only depicts the spectrum of physiological responses across the power duration relationship, it also depicts various models that can be used to model the power duration relationship for use in power profiling, highlighting how most models only cover a subset of the power duration relationship. For example, critical power is used to denote the phase transition between the heavy and the severe exercise domains. We've covered exercise domains in the past, but this figure really helps to illustrate the transition between the intensity domains. It's a unifying diagram because what you have on the diagram is the domains, and then you have a power duration curve overlaying that domain, and then underneath it, you have all the different power models ranged so that you can see where they are most valid really, really helped me to have that diagram and see all of those things together and kind of get my thoughts working. So kudos to you guys for coming up with that. And I think it'll be a really good uh, one for the listeners to look at. So now we're going to run through each domain. So the extreme exercise intensity domain, the severe exercise intensity domain, the heavy exercise intensity domain, and the moderate exercise intensity domain. And as just mentioned, there are multiple models to express the power duration relationship, but they generally only cover specific durations of the power duration relationship. So let's start from the top by modeling power output in the extreme exercise intensity domain. And previous research has demonstrated that the anaerobic power reserve, the APR, is capable of predicting short duration, this is less than three minute power outputs within this exercise intensity domain. We'll go through how to model each one of the domains that we have. We didn't mention the extreme domain, but we don't talk about the extreme, we don't talk about that domain on this. There is an existing model which has also been used in road cyclists by Deo, mm -hmm. uh, which is the anaerobic power mm -hmm. reserve. Yep. It, it models quite yep. decently, yep. Uh, and he also we definitely use it. I was just, I would just, we don't talk about it very much because of the endurance part of it. But for road cyclists, yeah, it is an important domain to definitely have a concept of, and because it's it's a race winning domain. Absolutely. So, um, for certain athletes. Uh, so yeah, it's not to be left out of this, of this conversation for sure. So as you said, like if you are modeling this domain, then yeah, you want to use the anaerobic power reserve. That's not the only mo model that covers this domain, correct? So no, there are more. And, and I think it starts with the three parameter critical power model, which was initially suggested by Hugh Morton. And I think that the only mm -hmm. problem with this model is that we've 
with a three parameter model and you have, for example, four, four prediction trials, you only have uh, one degree of freedom. So it's a statistical fitting problem where you just have the problem of the accuracy of your measures. Mm -hmm. So the error within this model for the power output prediction is very high. And this is why it has not, I think it has, has not been used quite regularly, although it's an, it's an alternative. And then you have this kind of um, the perineum to bow approaches and which is going into the more into the yeah, omnipower duration model. Let's look at modeling the power output in the severe exercise domain. Yeah. Again, so that's going to have an overlap with every single model that's on there. And if you are only used to something like maybe WKO5's power duration curve, the critical power severe domain is a very small section that's yeah. kind of in the center of, of it. That's one of the things that like kind of mess with me a little bit is that like when you talk about critical power, it's only a very small segment of something like the WKO5 model or the OMPD yeah. yeah. model. Yeah. Um, it's something to be aware of, but it, it, if you're aware of that, that also makes things simpler. Um, and we'll get to it later, but just talking about like how to actually, how simple it is to actually come up and calculate the critical power on Excel. Uh, I yeah, I think it took me like yeah, 10 yeah. minutes, but you wouldn't think it would be that easy if you look at the other bigger. Yeah, yeah, no, more it's complicated to, to get the to get the models. Yeah, yeah, to get your estimates, I think it's 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 quite easy. But what you were mentioning about, I think what most people mix up is the range where critical power and the W prime, so the two parameter estimates of the power duration relationship, where they can be reliably derived is a small range. So I'm not, and this range is mm -hmm. two to 15 minutes. With very good time trialists, I would say 20 minutes, mm -hmm. but not longer than 20 minutes. So the maximum two to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. This is the range, and this is a limited range. This is a range of 18 minutes, because theoretically, again, in this range, you can attain VO2 max. And that's, that's a criteria for being in the severe domain. Mm -hmm. And this domain distinguishes between from steady state exercise to non-steady state exercise, where you can no longer maintain a steady state. So you need the efforts steady state mm -hmm. to characterize the steady state, if, you, if that makes sense. And then you get your critical power and your W prime by different fitting methods, either by a linear regression an analysis of the work time or inverse of time model. And, and, and this is basically your estimate. And you type this estimates in for the equation for each respective duration. And then I would say the range where the model is valid depends on the, on the training caliber of the athlete. But we have seen athlete, and, and this was just recently approved, and, and, and it was just funny how when the athlete is self-basing him quite well and, and he knows him quite well, it can be valid up to 45 minutes, 15, uh, 15 minutes. Uh, it's definitely not going to one hour. I have never seen someone really riding on a CP um, at 15 minutes, 45 minutes, and so on. So, and it's, it's also a bit of a, a dubious question because yeah. the yeah. time at CB is not existing because your CB cannot be nailed down by a duration because it's a, it's a phase transition. It's affected by so many physiological factors that it is a range where it's kind of can be happening from, let's say, 20 minutes up to 50 minutes, I would say. And this is the range. 
And depending on the training caliber, mm -hmm. the athlete type, uh, your experience, and so on, and the day-to-day -day variation, you can either hold it longer or shorter. I think that's, that's a reasonable explanation. Yep. And then when someone is telling me, okay, that this power output range is not predictive of performance, I think every effort or every race deciding moment where we see on television, either in triathlon or in, in road cycling, is not longer than 15 minutes. I mean, an Ironman is long, but a race deciding moment in Ironman is not lo lasting longer than 15 minutes. It's an attack to over 15 minutes, over 20 minutes, and this can all be very accurately yeah. covered by the predictions of this model. The, the problem what we have is when athletes want to have an instantaneous mm -hmm. feedback of power output delivery over very long duration, this model falls apart. So I'm, I'm talking about one hour and yeah, longer. Yeah. Because the problem is that other factors, not only physiologically, yeah. but also from a nutrition perspective, so it's physiologically, of course, but the carbohydrate depletion then, and also motivation play a pivotal role in, um, in compromising your power output delivery for the long end. Yeah. One thing that I will add here is that knowing the athlete when testing for critical power is very important. Peter mentions a few of the factors that go into the possible duration an athlete can hold critical power, and this is where software or models alone can fail. I've seen it in pro teams where, say, at a training camp, performance staff are running the performance tests, the power profiling, and they set an unattainable critical power and then base all training from that number where if a coach is running the testing of an athlete they know well, they'll have a better idea of the athlete and the context of the test, and they'll make a more informed decision. And Jason has a similar point around critical power, at least in the limitations as we currently understand it. To kind of get a little bit of a segue here for the listeners is that in terms of domains, right? So far, we've talked about the power duration through the extreme domain and the power duration to the severe domain and being able to predict that with a model. And then obviously underneath the extreme and severe domains, you have the heavy and the moderate domains. So the critical power, the basic critical power works well within that severe domain and then a little bit into the heavy domain. But as you were getting into here is that once we get kind of out of that two parameter critical power has its limitations at the, you know, if it's too short, no, it doesn't represent anything because eventually that that duration goes to infinity <laughs> and the other way it goes to infinity. So you have to figure out like once you get into the heavy and moderate domains, it's it's a different kind of curve and, the, and you have to change the trajectory of it. And as you were saying, yeah, in those domains, it could because I... I think modeling it as you were getting into it becomes much, much more difficult. But yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Um, this is the this is the one. This is probably the the hardest one we have left to model. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the hardest one we have left, but it's also the mo the most interesting one because it's it requires more physiological underpinning as well. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, a new research direction where this kind of fatigue profiling goes into where is the tipping point of, of where this curve falls uh, or not. And, and I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I hope we can add more context in the future to, to this kind of 
trajectory. Yeah, but uh, it's definitely something interesting. And I think it's also good to say, mm-hmm. from the extensive research which has been covered, we know this, we know this, and we know this, but we don't know this. And I think that's just that's just where we are at the moment. It's nothing bad, but at least we can tell where we are <laughs> and what's missing. I think that's already a win. Yeah, it's not that yep. it can't be used or it's 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 it's, it's overall bad. No, it's it's just that point of knowledge what's existing at the moment mm-hmm. and and i think there are different working groups uh with different interests and different um research interests and and and, and project aims try to answer this and i think this is why we need that kind of uh, ongoing research and also this interest of, of high performance coaches athletes to help to answer this question together yeah because the problem is for for this kind of neat question you need very high caliber of athletes. Mm-hmm. It, it, it almost starts with, with the fatigue profiling aspect that, let's say for an okay cyclist like me, when I expend 2,500 kilojoules, I'm just going to stop on a bit shop and get a Coke and wait and rest. Mm-hmm. And, and for the others, it's the racing starts. So it's, it's just a very, also the, the kind of, of population um, or, or subgroup where, where this is accountable for is very small. And getting access to kind of athletes who are willing to help you there, where we cannot even say, okay, this is how it ends, that's kind of pilot work. And we did a lot of pilot work. We did pilot work where we say afterwards, okay, maybe this was not a good idea, but, but I think that's the try and error effect where we are at the moment. Uh, we were experimenting about how protocols can infect, you know, the decline in the power profile, for example. We have done a lot with between intermittent efforts, racing efforts, training efforts, motor-based efforts, um, group efforts. So a lot of a lot of try and error to find the kind of trigger, what combination is needed to see that kind of deflection point. It's really hard to do modeling when you don't know the underlying physiological mechanisms. So yeah. the good thing with critical power is we've got an idea of what's going on from a physiology perspective, and that's where that modeling has come from. Yeah. Whereas once you're getting that fatigue entirely within the moderate domain, we don't actually, that fatigue is multifactorial. Exactly. And it's often sometimes difficult to pinpoint what's actually happened. So, for example, my ride yesterday was close to six hours entirely in the moderate domain. I, w- I would have spent less than a minute above critical power. I'm pretty fatigued at the end, but it's not easy for me to pinpoint where that fatigue is. Half of it's just from staring at a screen to sit at that power the whole time. The other half's just from having to concentrate. The other, yeah, like I'm I'm running out of halves here, but there's there's so many different uh, factors attributing to that fatigue and why I couldn't just do maybe 12 or 18 hours at that intensity, Uh, but I was quite happy with doing six at that intensity. So. And yeah, how do you how do you then model that when we don't actually know the reasons for that fatigue? Just getting the the mean maximal power durations for be super motivated and do a three hour test for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And make sure it's steady yeah. state, right? Like like yeah. this, the the data points at the are just extremely hard, going to be extremely hard to get at that point. Like, yeah. yeah, I'll go out and do a four hour ride, but yeah. are you going to do a four hour ride or whatever you're trying to hit and then be at absolute failure at that point? Yeah. Exactly. Did you get the failure because you didn't eat correctly? Did you get a failure because yeah. it's hot out? Did you, you know, yeah. are you not motivated? Yeah. We need to ask Louise Burke how she got all her nutrition subjects to do that in all of her 
time to exhaustion for all these nutrition things in our, in our four-hour studies. Mm -hmm. And even the pros hate it, you know, because the pros are really used to this. But if you say to a pro, hey, we are going to do this, he would rather prefer racing four hours hard than doing this test. So mm -hmm. the problem is in this pilot phase, we don't have any kind of, of machine learning or metrics or whatever you call. So you need to go out, do the work required and, and pilot test. So and, and go into the into the pain. Yeah, that, 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 that's what we're requiring at the moment. Um, yeah. But we hope in the future, maybe we can determine this deflection point already when, when just doing a, a, a small version of a pre-fatiguing task. Um, and, and what's interesting in this context is not only looking at only power output and so on, but also to the signal how power output is delivered. There is some really interesting work from Mark Burnley and colleagues about knee extensor exercising and how this is influenced by pre-fatiguing. And what be interesting is, it's just very speculative here, but, but what would be very interesting in how does the power output delivery in a second-by-second -second date or even in a 200 millisecond, um, so how is the power output signal affected by fatigue? So if there is, is there is, are there more undulating variation in power output spikes uh, when the athlete fatigues or is it a bigger amplitude? So looking more on, on the signal quality of, of the recorded uh, power output trace, I think this would also be quite an inter interesting area where at least we can then understand kind of factors of the fatigue mechanisms are involved. So is it a neuromuscular factor? Is it an energetic factor? Is it a coordinative factor? Mm -hmm. So as you said, it's, it's multifaceted. Um, but, but I think here you need to go into a variety of, of directions to, to exploit the, these underpinning factors. And I think that's, that's also really, really exciting um, to do. And as far as we are right now, when looking at the power duration curve, Jason brings up a good point that when you see this power duration curve on here, realize that like some points on that curve, we are pretty uh, certain we have more certainty and other points, it's just going to be a lot more wiggle room going on there. Uh, yeah, I, I think we not with the heavy. I think with the heavy, we are quite close as we we in the heavy. We still we still have this substretch. Um, limitation from carbohydrate metabolism and i think this was very well conducted by either clark and, and colleagues and also matthew black uh, did some some interesting work there i think the exciting thing gets with 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 the moderate domain as this can be hold quite very very long time uh so the most time spectrum where we sit on the bike so I think there will be some changes in the future in terms of accuracy. It does not mean that the model are changing, but at least we, we, we have more certainty if this kind of predictions makes sense or not. As I said, it's, it's something where what, what needs future work, and I would not be overly confident to make any kind of power output prediction for the moderate domain. I would be almost quite certain, knowing the athlete caliber, knowing the kind of physiological context to model the heavy domain, but definitely with the moderate domain, we, we need some, we need, we, we need to just to be a bit more patient uh, about it. But overall, I think it's, it's going into the right direction. So we, we know what we are looking at, at least. We know the limitation. And I think that's already quite a good trend for the future work. And I'm sure in the next two to three years, we have an answer for this. So yeah, I think it, it won't last 10 years again to, to answer this question. So yeah, we should be ready soon to have some good data confirming this. Okay, so now we've gone through all of the models. 
and that's where I'm going to stop it. This topic is going to be split into two episodes. In the next episode, part two, we are going to get into the practical advice on how to power profile, including getting right into the details on how to choose the best method for your situation and where power profiling is headed in the near future. Dr. Peter Leo is the training scientist for Cycling. Peter, thank you for joining us and sharing your work and enthusiasm. Good luck in your new role. And we look forward to welcoming you back to the show to discuss more of your ideas. Speaking of Peter's ideas, there are a lot of Peter's interview that didn't make it into these two episodes. So we're going to go and put those together as a bonus episode for members, which is only one of the benefits of being a member of the Cycling Performance Club, because there is a members only feed that has full interviews and bonus episodes like the one I'm talking about. And as a reminder, the Cycling Performance Club podcast is a listener-supported podcast, so we would be stoked if you supported us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution. With your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community for a better sport. Click on the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Don't forget, Jason, Cyrus, and I offer coaching and consulting services for cyclists and teams. Links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening.